Hello and welcome to this episode of The Future of Schools. The podcast explores how technology is impacting the classroom and talks to the people behind it. I'm Connor Flynn, your host and COO at Adaptomy, and today we're discussing student voice. My guest today is Dr. Paula Flynn, Assistant Professor at the School of Inclusive and Special Education at DCU. How are you doing, Paula? Hi, Connor. Thank you very much for inviting me. Great to have you here. Paula, could you just tell me a little bit about your background and your career there so that we can set the scene for our listeners? Sure, absolutely. Um, For a long time, my career really was more involved in music than anything else. I was a singer and a musician, and then I went on then to teach music and found that I got a lot more pleasure out of putting children on stage than being on stage myself. So that, I suppose, I actually entered into formal teaching a little bit later in life. Um, because once I got the bug for teaching and decided then to pursue the higher diploma, um, get my degree and so on and so forth, um, it propelled me into education that little bit later. Um, but when I, by the time I became a post-primary teacher and I was teaching music, I was teaching English, and um, over a short period of time, I discovered I was really drawn to working with children who were you know, finding school quite challenging. And I think one of the reasons perhaps that I was drawn towards children who had that experience was um, possibly a little bit with maturity. I had less anxiety of working with troubled teenagers. But also, I suppose, um, I was very conscious of the fact that I didn't have the answers. Um, it didn't bother me not to have the answers, if you know what I mean. So if, if somebody sent a child with me and said that they were struggling or their behaviour was difficult, I knew I didn't necessarily know how to support that child or how best to help them to overcome whatever challenges they were experiencing. So it was quite a, um, I suppose, a, a natural um, dialogue for me to enter into the whole kind of Socratic dialogue. So what can we do? How can I help? What can you tell me? Um, so all of this stemmed from me from a very natural curiosity of working with children, trying to understand the experience of school from their perspective. I've been very conscious of the fact that I didn't know that perspective. So that's where Student Voice started for me. And from that, I suppose I was um, invited to give a few guest lectures in different universities just on the methodologies that I was using uh, with children, particularly who were presenting with um, emotional and behavioural difficulties, who were struggling for any reason in school, or if they were if they had been um, assessed and diagnosed with any kind of uh, additional needs or special educational needs. So that became, I suppose, my particular area of focus. I became more and more interested in it, but not just in terms of the challenges that children children were experiencing, but very much interested in their way of coming to answers and conclusions, supporting themselves, challenging them, if you like, to find ways of making things work and making things better, most importantly. So that's really where it started for me. So I decided then to do a PhD. And my PhD was about student voice, but it was also about working with children who had been um, identified with this very complex terminology uh, that you'll only really ever hear in education circles and that is social, emotional, behavioural difficulties. Mm -hmm. Began from there and then I uh, was offered a position in the School of Education at Trinity College Dublin as assistant professor there. 
thoroughly enjoyed my time there. I worked in the area of inclusive education, also expanded out to work even further and more deeply in the area of voice, marginalised voices and student voice predominantly. And then I moved to DCU School of Inclusive and Special Education just a couple of years ago. And again, still, that is most particularly my area of focus. Okay, thanks for that, Paula. And can you give us, in your own words, what does student voice mean? Okay, well, first and foremost, I suppose the voice element of it is is what's most important. And I think if we can ever imagine a situation where we feel voiceless, where something really important is happening in our lives, but we don't feel that we have a legitimate input into decision-making that is happening around us, then there is a tremendous sense of powerlessness. Now, I'm quite convinced, and I see this all the time, that sometimes people survive that perfectly well. They accept it. They, they assume certain social norms and just say, oh, that's the way things are done. But then for others, that can be quite a struggle. And the more disenfranchised people feel, or the more they feel that what's happening around them is unfair or that they might have a, a better idea of how something could be done differently, the more powerless they feel, the more um, frustrated, and that can lead to anger and emotional problems. Now, in terms of, I suppose, if I were to define voice, for me, I would say if I believe I have a voice, then I know I've been heard. I know that I can take part in discussions uh, legitimately and that I will be listened to and respected for what I have to say. And that is hugely important for me as an understanding of voice because it is hugely tied into the whole notion of power. Now, if we put student with that, student voice, now we get to a point where that power dimension can become quite problematic because I suppose some of the experiences I've had is that going into schools, schools are expected to do so much nowadays. There has always been a lot expected of schools, but even now to be sites of excellence, to be as high as possible in league tables, very often to take in children who may be experiencing dreadful social circumstances and make that better and to respond to everything that's happening in society around us. It's a huge ask of teachers, of principals, of schools in general. But then somebody like me comes along and says, well, we also need to hear the voices of the children themselves. Now, where I've worked on projects with schools, in schools, um, on student voice, and we've had tremendous positive results as a consequence of that. It hasn't always happened overnight or been terribly easy because, and I don't have any, I suppose there's no surprise in me in, in telling you that I've had six experience, but sometimes when you approach adults and perhaps they've had a difficult experience with some of their students if there are behavioural problems or engagement problems or social problems that are coming in the door and then all of a sudden you want to amplify the voice of the child it can seem to the adults in the relationships that perhaps they will be potentially undermined or they will be in some way disenfranchised but actually my experience has been and this has been almost 100% at this stage because we've we've had quite a a very positive track um, in terms of student voice projects in Ireland so far and the ones that I've been involved in. 
what we get to is really a point where teachers realize, actually, no, I'm not being undermined here. What's happening is there is now a power sharing that is happening. There's now a sense of responsibility and ownership on the part of the students, just as much as there is on the teacher. And very often we discover that young people and adults are looking for the same things. They might actually articulate them differently, but they have very common goals and aspirations. And even getting to the point of realizing that and having a conversation where that shared understanding and shared language happens can be really uplifting and powerful and indeed transformative. Yeah, I can see how that is. Can you can you give me some examples of implementations that you've done either yeah. recently or in the recent past? Sure, absolutely. Um, okay, I'll give you uh, maybe three brief examples. I suppose that they might these might encapsulate um, pretty well what I'm talking about. The first major study that I conducted, I alluded to earlier, and it was working with children who had been identified with social emotional behavioural difficulties. Um, in that case, I worked across four different schools um, and children who had been identified by principal, principals in those particular schools as potential um, uh, social or, or education, uh, potentially at risk of either social or educational exclusion, became involved in the project with me. Now, I suppose what I learned from working with that particular group is something that has actually influenced everything that I've done since. Um, Because some of the children who were involved with me then were either the most challenging in terms of behaviour that you might witness in a school, or conversely, their behaviour was challenging, but in in a way that we don't necessarily identify always as being challenging, where the child might have been perhaps neurotic or very withdrawn, depressed, um, presenting with internalising behaviours. So for me, whether the behaviours are internalising, in other words, withdrawn or externalising, which could mean quite disturbing and disruptive, all of that is problematic um, for a child and um, can in fact hide many other serious issues that are going on underneath. So these are the children that I worked with over a three, four year period. And um, I can say of a group of 35, because this was a qualitative in-depth study, that for 33 of those young people, it was a very successful experience. And none of those children were lost to post-primary school. They all completed um, secondary school, bar one, um, who moved to a different um, school. He moved to youth reach, and that was because of um, a number of circumstances that we really just that were out of our out of our hands that we didn't have um, any, any control over. But ultimately, the reason why the project was successful was because the children were telling me that nobody listens to me. This is unusual. I, I don't understand why you're interested in what I have to say. Um, So just, I suppose, the enormity of it for them was the fact that they were being heard, they were being respected. But then I was moving them to a point of saying, well, I can't actually change your education system. I can't change your school. I don't have that power. I'm coming from the outside in to talk to you 
So what can you do? So it was about that move, that really important move to, okay, what can you do? How can you make this better for yourself? And getting them to a point there when they were not just isolated, but working in groups and coming up with ideas. Mm -hmm. And the kind of ideas they had, they were not um, extraordinary, but they were their ideas and for that reason they were most important and most powerful so simple things like for example one of the most simple um um tools which emerged was something that's called MyPad and it's actually in use still uh, many years later and something that I'm hoping to develop quite soon into an app in fact but MyPad was a positive aims diary it was designed by the children in the language of the children basically asking their teachers to notice the goals that they were setting for themselves and to see were they able to support themselves and achieve these goals and what was unusual about the goals was that you could have one child whose goal could be to be attentive in class or to stop kicking the child in front of them or throwing things in class or something really disruptive and that might have been their target goal but for another child quite equally and just as importantly the goal could be to go up to a teacher at the end of the class and say I'm really sorry but I didn't understand something that you were explaining today or I wasn't able to take down the homework would you mind explaining to me again Mm -hmm. or just having the confidence to ask a question or look for help so that's how important it was and that's how I suppose how inclusive if you like um, as a project this was everything that I learned from that apart from the likes of my pad children having the opportunity to mentor each other Mm -hmm. to care for each other to develop caring relations where they're not completely if you like focusing in on themselves and their own difficulties but actually having empathy for others that was also a really crucial element of the project and something that the children themselves um, identified as having been very successful and then one of the things I suppose that emerged and that none of us would have expected and that was how children became leaders and children who were not necessarily identified as ever necessarily having that kind of leadership potential emerged as being the young people in the school who having had the experience of being part of change, developing change, making things better for themselves and for others wanted to go on and do more and this was something which was identified most particularly by the principals in the schools that I was working in there's one principal in fact I've quoted her over and over again and where she said for me uh, the most extraordinary element of this project was to see the leadership potential from children I had personally identified as exclusion risks Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that would be the first project um Arising from that, um, I suppose, you know, schools uh, and in Ireland, everybody knows everybody. So I was very fortunate at the time that the work I had done, although it was in depth, it was qualitative, so therefore it was happening only in in um, 
isolated areas and um, just across four schools. But there were people like, for example, Clive Byrne, who is um, the director of the National Association of Principals and Deputy Principals, who was very interested in the work that I had done. And he invited me to um, pursue a further project in the area of student voice, something that was even far more inclusive and could be for any child or every child in any school in Ireland. Mm-hmm. He invited me to speak at one of the NAPD conferences in Galway. And once I had had that opportunity, I literally had um, a queue of principals coming up to me at the end of that presentation, asking me, could I visit their school? Could, could I help them in any way to initiate some kind of student voice project in the school? So I did, and I visited schools all around the country and started small projects in some schools and larger projects in other schools. But they were all, every one of them was different. Each school decided um, what they wanted. And when I say the school decided, children volunteered to work with me and a team of facilitators in their schools and they chose what their research question was and they were so broad for example one school wanted to know how to make their student council more relevant mm-hmm. um, they wanted to know if their student council could in any way support um, inclusion in the school not just in the classroom, but on the corridors and in the playground. Um, Another school wants to know how can we improve relationships between teachers and students. Um, Another school wants to know how they could develop more trust in the school. So all all of the schools had different ideas and different ways of going about it. And my role was really there to come in as a support and to encourage, you know, to monitor what was happening. And then at the end of the year, the greatest joy of all to congratulate, you know, to celebrate and see what had been done in schools. And it was fascinating for me to see most importantly how relationships in every one of those schools had changed, um, even where there were already good relationships between teachers and students. They were much stronger And in some schools where the relationships weren't that good, definitely that was one of the highlights of the year for many of those schools, how teachers and students had a much greater understanding of the perspective, for example, of the classroom from each other's point of view because of these regular meetings and conversations. And then I suppose the final study that I'll talk about, because it's it's probably most well-known and quite recent, I was invited in by the National Council for Curriculum and Assessment um, to support them during junior cycle reform. And they wanted to meet with young people in secondary schools around Ireland and discuss the changes that were happening at junior cycle. And most particularly to look at specific subjects as they were being reviewed with development groups in NCCA. So my role was to meet with children in schools and to talk about specific subject areas, for example, science, business studies, Gaelga, modern foreign languages, art, music, all of those subjects, for example, um, were being reviewed at the time that I was conducting this study. And what I did was I designed, if you like, I suppose, a methodology or an approach that could be used and handed on, handed back to education officers in NCCA so that they could continue this consultation without me. But the first year was very much about fine tuning it, understanding what was working 
working best. My role most particularly was less, if you like, about the subject areas because they weren't necessarily areas in which I had particular expertise. But my area was most particularly to look to the young people and ask them, are we doing this right? Can we do this any better? What would you like to do? Would you like to do something more? You know, how many meetings do we need to have? How long should the meetings be? Who should comprise these meetings? Who should lead these meetings? And that was, I suppose, the most important role I had for that study. And um, it was a very successful study. It, it really, I suppose, entrenched that whole understanding um, across schools and NCCA on how important it is to get the insights of young people because they have tremendous understanding of the learning that is happening in their classroom. They know what appeals to them. They know what interests them. We spoke to, very interestingly, we spoke in each case, we spoke to young people who particularly enjoyed those subject areas, but also children who had chosen not to do them for some reason, who had perhaps been exposed to one of those subjects, for example, music or art or business studies, and decided for some reason it wasn't for them. So it was equally interesting for us to find out why. Why were you drawn to it and why did you drop it? And the kind of questions we were asking were, what would you like to keep? What would you like to change? And once again, as happens all the time, by the time we got back to the development groups, the expert groups who had been who had been put together by NCCA and included teachers and researchers and academics and union representation, a vast group of people brought together in each of those subject areas to really focus in on improving these subjects for junior cycle reform. They were almost always taken aback by the expert insights coming from the young people and how very often they were surprised at the fact that they were thinking so similarly. Yeah, Paula, I'm listening to you here and I'm hearing about the the shift that you're looking for in terms of mindset in schools. And like traditionally, there is a huge power distance between teachers and students. And you even find often when you're talking to teachers in the civilian realm as such, uh, they find it difficult to shift back and forth between um, talking in their school voice and their out-of-school voice. I can imagine that a lot of teachers might find what you're talking about nice in theory, but difficult in practice. Yes. Um, yes. Have you ever met any pushback when trying to implement? Very often. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I suppose I've met it in two different quarters. Um, first of all, I suppose the first time I would have encountered resistance would have been um, when I went to schools that had been you know, recommended to me or where principals were, were interested in seeing what this whole student voice thing is all about. But by the time I actually got there and met teachers and staff rooms, that sometimes there was, um, you know, quite a strong sense of resistance um, 
anxiety, I'd say more than anything else, you know, that issue of are you going to amplify the voice of the child? But in doing that, will the teacher now somehow be disenfranchised or less important? Or in other words, that if we're going to hear one group of voices, does that mean we're not going to hear another? Mm-hmm. Um, or are we going to be respectful of all voices? So that has been something I suppose that I've really um, tended to try and focus in on because where people get really involved in this um, and see how this kind of engagement and consultation most particularly because if I could come back to that in a moment the consultation element of oh, this is hugely important but it's it's the realization that um, first of all children have the right to be heard and I don't always lead with that. I always get to that because sometimes you need to actually begin by explaining the potential benefits for children, for teachers, for schools in actually engaging with student voices by giving them the opportunity to be a part of decision-making processes and to see how that can impact on the culture of a school. But actually, the truth of the matter is we also need to remember that children have a right to be heard under the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, Article 12, on matters that affect them, with due, of course, uh, recourse to their age and maturity. So that's not to put old heads on young shoulders. It's not to give them responsibility beyond their years or to suggest that children should now be running the school. But it's also to understand that if we really want children to be leaving school with a sense of respect an understanding of civic matters and citizenship and a greater understanding of society, a rounded young person leaving school, having had a good experience of school, then one of the things that's really important is that they should have that feeling of respect, that respect for themselves and belief and confidence in themselves, that they have something legitimate to um, contribute and how that can impact on their relationships both with their peers and with their teachers. Um, But all of that, I think, is quite a learning curve. And my experience, um, because I'm very privileged, I suppose, in the role that I'm I'm in, that I have the opportunity to visit a lot of schools around the country. And I can honestly say that schools are on a spectrum. They're Mm -hmm. at different stages in this. And there is certainly, I believe, right now, from a tremendous momentum to see what we can do with this. There's a lot of talk now about student voice. Some of it concerns me because I think it's very, very easy. And it's not just when we're talking about student voice or children's voices necessarily, but in the whole area of voice, sometimes it can be too easy for it to be a tokenistic gesture. Mm-hmm. What's important is what happens once you've heard what has been said. Yeah. What is the potential that's going to come out of that? So, yes, I'm imagining you have a policy in the school. You go and we're going to listen to the students. We're going to get them to talk. We're going to get them to write down their thoughts. Right, we've done that now. Let's go back to normal. Exactly. The tick box exercise. And the other danger as well is whose voices are heard. You know, who's most likely to be asked to contribute an opinion? Is it going to be the, the young person who more Already obviously comes the ethos of the school, who is popular or articulate? Whereas any child, every child matters. There, And in fact, sometimes the least popular child, the least empowered child is possibly the one who needs most 
to be heard and who can really have so much more potential benefit as a consequence of that. Um, so all of that is really important for me. So that's why I've moved a lot of the work that I'm doing now to something that I've called um, the learner voice space. Mm-hmm. And depending in what area of education you're, you're, you're talking in. So, for example, I was invited to speak at the um, ETBI um, or All-Ireland Conference there a couple of months back. And they talk about learners because they're looking at the spectrum of education from early childhood right through to uh, third level. And therefore, learner is, is, a, is a more appropriate um a description than students sometimes but for me learner has a very very different meaning when I talk about the learner voice space I mean that if we are listening then we are learning if we are listening there is a dialogue if you you and I are talking to each other I say something you ask me a question you respond to what I've said you you tell me in some way that I'm not just speaking in a podcast and Nobody, nobody has heard what I've said. You, you indicate that something I've said has interested in, uh, has interested you, or piqued your interest, and you want to know more about it. And how do you do that? You respond back to me, or you, you check for understanding. Is, is this what you really meant? Is that, or, or have I misinterpreted? Those are hugely significant elements in progressing voice. Mm-hmm. particularly marginalised voices and student voice in particular. So when when we have these relationships of student voice engagement in school, more often than not, we're asking adults to listen to children. And that's a good thing. But we don't always have a common language or a shared understanding of language. So that interpretation is something that's really important and something that I suppose I would be very used to myself in my role as researcher um, I have the privilege of interviewing people but that in itself is a very powerful experience what's going to stop me from listening to an interview and thinking oh those are really important points I like that and I like that I'm being selective about what I've heard or putting a a particular emphasis because that's actually answering my question but unfortunately that for me is not uh, true integrity in research or voice. What's important is to be able to reflect back everything I've heard and ask, have I understood you properly? Am I over-interpreting this? Or what I use in terms of this language with children, do we adulterate? Do we adult interpret what we've heard? So that's for me the learner voice space because it means it's an ongoing conversation. It's not just a, a once-off project or something that's trendy or sexy to do right now, but just this is how we do things. We include everyone, all of our stakeholders in the decision-making process. And because we're having a constant conversation, we can check for understandings and we are learning from each other. Thanks for that, Paula. And I'm just thinking at the moment, a lot of your work has been done with learners or students who have had social or emotional difficulties or have had learning difficulties or haven't fit in in the past. What, what, what would you say to people who say student voice, listening to students and the method, methodology that you've come up with is only really suitable as a last resort for most schools which are functioning fine 
let's just continue to function fine. Why take on something like this? It's just going to cause a lot of extra work for very little results. Very, very good question. Um, well, I, obviously, I, w- I would disagree with that because I think that every school um, has the potential to improve and schools are pushing themselves and are being pushed constantly to meet new challenges. Um, And the only way they can really do that is by listening to the people who are in the school. And by that, I mean teachers and children to have a greater understanding of what's working and what isn't working. Um, I find, I suppose, sometimes when I go around to schools and we're talking about different projects that are out there, new um, innovations, and something I've heard quite a lot is, you know, that there is... um, incentive fatigue Mm-hmm. And I can understand that. I think we, we ask a lot of schools sometimes um, and some of the new incentives and some of the new innovations are absolutely wonderful. But if they're all happening together at the same time, it can just be quite daunting um, and, and considerably add to the workload. I think we actually need to take more time for care to look after each other, to look after mental health and well-being and to stop and ask, is this working? How could we do it better? And who do we need to ask those questions of? Well, we need to ask the children and we need to ask the teachers. We need to have them work together to find what is, in fact, the best fit. And I don't think that that's necessarily anything to do with social problems or emotional problems. I think that's for every child and for every teacher. And really, ultimately, what we want is to have happy schools. We want schools that are working well with young people and adults going to school in the morning, looking forward to the day, looking forward to the work ahead. And of course, that might sound like utopia at times, but actually, in fact, I have the pleasure of visiting many schools where I have seen this happen. Um, I can think of a couple of schools, in fact, in the last couple of years who have really embraced this whole idea of learner voice space and listening to each other and actually taking time time out during the year to have maybe an afternoon which is purely about stripping back let's talk what's going on with you what do you think of what we're doing now how do you think we can do it better how can we make this sustainable and they have found that just giving the time to do that has really improved the atmosphere and the culture of the school Um, so I think that every school and any school can benefit from this kind of engagement. And Paula, you're talking about you see a difference in the schools, in the atmosphere, in the culture of a school. Nowadays, we're living in a society that likes to measure things, particularly in the Anglo-Saxon and Irish education systems. Um, And if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist, seems to be one of the most commonly heard phrases around, not just in schools, but across uh, industry and work as well. Um, You talked earlier about measuring your success in your first project by the completion rate uh, that 31 out of your 33 students completed secondary school. How would you give feedback to people who aren't as deep deeply involved in in your projects of how well the project was going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, and I think that that's also a, a great question. And you're so right. I think we are um, 
we get so hung up with measurements and, and league tables and what have you. And there are two things I suppose I would say to that. Um, first of all, um, I don't believe that student voice, that it should be primarily or predominantly about necessarily um, improving engagement, improving behaviour or improving learning or indeed improving schools. However, I can honestly say with great confidence that, that, that they are some of the very real and genuine benefits that have been seen both here in Ireland and internationally from across a number of student voice projects in the past. And you need only look to people like um, Jean Ruddock and um, Dana Mitra in the States, Alison Cook, say they're Michael Fielding. These are all um, people who devoted their research, um, particularly into the whole area of student voice. And over and over again, these have been these have been the consequences of student voice engagement and real consultation by that something which is far more authentic than just asking young people their ideas or advice or suggestions. It's actually consulting them and involving them and bringing them to a point, facilitating partnership where they are really genuinely involved um, in decision making, not just uh, giving insights in other words. But what I would say beyond that, so I mean, first of all, if you are going to see um, as a consequence of that kind of consultation and those kind of relationship buildings, that there is an improvement in terms of engagement and atmosphere in school. Well, first of all, I think, you know, how do you measure that? Well, I think you measure that in terms of how happy are people in school? Um, are children more engaged? Are they more interested in learning? Are they more taking more ownership of their own experience of school. And that's something I think that, I don't know quite how you measure it, but certainly if it's happening, you will know about it. Mm -hmm. But what I think is far more important than that is the fact that the, the really best experiences that I have seen um, in terms of student voice projects, which have not been necessarily for a very specific result. So for example, in terms of curriculum reform or anything like that, but just where a school wanted to see, well, what can happen if we listen to children more, if we give them more ownership? And what we've seen there really is a cultural shift. And yes, I don't believe you can necessarily measure it, but if you can ask young people, as I have done, visited a school and asked them, do you believe that you are heard? Do you know that you are listened to? How do you know? Do you believe that you can make change in your school? Have you ever been a party to um, making something different happen in your school? Do you think your teachers listen to you? Do you believe you're respected in this school? If children can come back and answer yes to those questions, I can't think of a better measurement, Connor. Mm -hmm. What do you believe the future of student voice is? What would you like to see happening in the future? How would you feel proud? I know you already feel proud of what you've achieved, but what, what would be the the what would be the perfect future for you in terms of student voice? Okay, I think something that is automatically built in, that is something that I suppose, first of all, one really important thing that I didn't mention, you know, teachers do wonderful jobs in their day-to-day -day job, but 
being a facilitator of student voice or having the confidence to, for example, look for feedback from students or um, invite them into making changes, for example, in the way something is taught and learned. Those are skills and that that requires a level of confidence that a teacher isn't necessarily going to have. You know, it's not necessarily in their their toolkit of what they do or how they do things. So I believe, first of all, that teachers need support and schools need support and need the opportunity to see, well, why do this anyway? And if I want to do it, how can I do it well? So that would be one thing that I would certainly like to be a part of, and that is supporting schools and finding a way of supporting schools to have the confidence for this because what can happen sometimes is is if you've had a wonderful project has happened in a school and it has created some kind of a change where you have young people at that present time who are very confident and you know very forthcoming with their ideas but what happens is they move on and unless there is a top-down response to this, then that wonderful bottom-up approach, which can reap such tremendous rewards, is not sustainable. Mm-hmm. So I suppose, for me, the future needs to be in the leadership, the leadership qualities that have to go along with this, where schools can really see the benefits by looking to each other. And I think they will learn that more from other schools than they will ever, ever learn from me. So looking to some of the sites of excellence that we have already where schools are thriving and enjoying this new experience and for other schools to have the opportunity to see this in action and learn from each other that I suppose is what I really want to see and also a move to something which is more democratic in schooling um, where we listen to everybody where we give we have respect for teachers as well as students to know best how how to to work within this uh, you know challenging environment of schools very often in terms of teaching and learning how best to make this work well for everybody and I think if we can have that respect for each other in that learner voice space I think it would do a huge amount in terms of um, development of education in this country. Excellent Paula and can do you have a link or a website that you could direct our listeners to to find out more about your methodology and some of the papers you've written on this? Yes, absolutely. I have indeed. Um, I'm both, I'm on ResearchGate. You can just look up ResearchGate Paula Flynn and I have some papers there. Um, I always upload everything so that it's it's um, publicly accessible. And also my um, page with DCU, just Paula Flynn DCU will bring you to biographical details and there are different uh, links in there to publications and research and what I'm doing at the moment. Big thanks to Dr. Paula Flynn, Assistant Professor of the School of Inclusive and Special Education at DCU. Thank you very much for coming on the program today. Thank you very much, Connor. It was my pleasure. If you like our show and want to know more about the future of schools or Adaptomy, check out www.adaptomy.com or please leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud. 